Hello, fellow planeswalkers, and welcome to Into the Ether Vortex. My name is Ninja Boy, your guide into all the different ways you can enjoy Magic the Gathering and how they all come together into something wild, wacky, and a little bit magical. So, how's everything going on in Magic Internet this week? Since since my last episode, I'm sure that nothing major will throw off my release schedule and... Oh. 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 Well, given the delay on Commander Legends, that has freed up another spot between now and the episode when I'm supposed to go over which cards from that set I want to include in my EDH decks, I guess I have time to speak my thoughts on the latest controversy in the Magic community to all 12 of my regular listeners, uh, hopefully with a measured level-headed take. Uh, so for anyone who somehow plays Magic the Gathering and listens to my tiny little podcast but has somehow ignored the rest of the Magic internet, uh, here's a quick recap of the events. So, last Monday, September 28th, uh, Wizards of the Coast announced their latest Secret Lair drop, Secret Lairs being the set of cards you can purchase directly from them for a limited time. Uh, up to this point, Secret Lairs have been a pre of pre-existing Magic cards with alternate arts. However, this time, they announced a crossover with the AMC show The Walking Dead, featuring mechanically unique black border cards displaying different characters from the TV show, Rick, Glenn, Michonne, Daryl, and Negan. Uh, now, the fact that these are mechanically unique black border cards meant that these cards would be legal to play in Legacy, Vintage, and Commander, uh, and that these cards with these effects cards with these effects have not yet appeared on any other cards up to this point in Magic history. So, there's a lot to unpack here, and a lot goes into why people are upset about the secret lair and people saying it's the death of Magic as we know it, which, uh, not to bury the lead, I think that this is a little bit overblown. So, first, and in my opinion, the most valid argument against this uh, is the fact that there are mechanically unique cards that are not available universally. Secret Lair itself has had issues shipping to all regions worldwide, and because of customs and import fees internationally, regions outside of the US that can get Secret Lairs have additional paywalls blocking them. Uh, the fact that these cards will no longer be available after this week, which at the time of this recording comes out, basically this day, um, and for transparency's sake, I will disclose that I did purchase a copy of The Secret Lair. Um, that is problematic uh, if someone wants to add these cards to their deck uh, later on in the future because there will only ever be a limited supply of these cards out there. Now, Mark Rosewater has said that they do have the ability to print these cards again in some other form, not with this particular combination of art and frame and such, uh, if there is demand for these cards in the future. But in the interim, as with every in-demand card, such as Fetch Lance, uh, this is just going to act as a roadblock to access the game, which, again, is already kind of a luxury at this point, given how expensive the game can be, depending on how you play it, right? If you want the most powerful uh, cards out there that are tier one, um, you know, this very well may be that. Uh, this definitely makes Magic a lot feel like a lot more play to win uh, when those with the most money will have access to you know the best and rarest cards. Um, now that's always been true to some extent, but you know at the very least, even the most mechanically powerful unique cards being printed in precon decks such as the Commander precons, um, those are printed and available over an indefinite period of time of you know around a year or so while those products are being printed en masse by Wizards and distributed to you know most major distributors online, not locked behind a relatively small one-week time period that you can only buy, get by buying directly from Wizards. Uh, again, I am personally in agreement that locking mechanically unique cards behind a time and geographic paywall is pro problematic for the long-term health of the game. Uh, if this 
podcast is about exploring how people enjoy the game of magic in different ways. Anything that meaningfully limits access to others for the game of magic is something I want to change. That said, I can also see why wizards would use the secret layer to be to test out the idea of crossing over mechanically unique cards uh, with you know other IP. But I'll touch on that later in the episode. That actually brings me nicely to the second reason people had concerns about this drop. The fact that non-Magic the Gathering IP was crossing over into Black Border. Now, Magic has had its own crossovers in recent years. Silver-bordered cards featuring Transformers and My Little Ponies have been printed, and in Ikoria, they had the Godzilla series where select cards from the set received alternate art versions featuring characters from the Toho Japanese franchise. Many expressed distaste at having non-Magic characters quote-unquote invade their Magic games, saying it would break immersion or the suspension of disbelief uh, of Magic games to have other franchises enter the game. Uh, the webcomic Cardboard Cracked summed the idea up there'd be a pretty slippery slope toward having other franchises entering the Magic universe from Marvel to Disney to Rick and Morty. Uh, the fact that these Magic these Walking Dead characters are presumably soap in a legacy or commander game with no non-magic alternative, such as with the Godzilla cards, uh, bothers a lot of people who have strong attachment to magic lore. Many accusations are thrown out that the magic is being reversed to an advertising platform for other IPs that wiz and wizards were turning their back on the 27-year history of lore that they had built up. Um, you know, a related and vocally held reason that people didn't like this was the fact that Negan from The Walking Dead has been shown on screen to commit heinous acts of violence and that having such a character at the table has, has, does not have a place at the table in a supposedly all-ages card game. Now, personally, the idea of magic crossing over into other IPs doesn't really bother me, and in fact, I do welcome that particular change in direction, but I'll explain why later on in this episode. Uh, as far as Negan specifically being a, uh, you know, someone who has heinous acts of violence that you know could be triggering to people, I am sympathetic to that, especially if, you know, you and your playgroup does have someone who has that issue. Uh, that being said, I also do think that, you know, magic having characters such as Ob Nixilis, Nicol Bolas, and so on, who do commit, you know, the game is a game of warfare and there is death that happens in the game, uh, you know, kind of nullifies this to some degree. Others, some some may speak to the fact that, oh, well, there is a visual, you know, high, like if people are going to be researching this or whatever, um, they may end up finding this accidentally and getting triggered, which seems like a bit of a stretch to me if you didn't already know who the character was. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to poo-poo anyone who legitimately has an issue with that. Um, again, you know, talk to your playgroup, you know, be mature adults and have this conversation. Now, there are a bunch of ancillary issues about why people took umbrage with this, but I think that I would say that those two, you know, the distribution of mechanically unique tournament legal magic cards uh, in a time and functionally geographically limited manner, and the fact that these black border cards are no longer magic only IP, those were the kind of the two big umbrella issues that people had issue with this drop. So, to continue on with the timeline of events, after the initial social media and content creator outcry early on in the week, Weekly MTG had a stream on Thursday where they talked about the philosophy surrounding uh, the strategy with the Walking Dead secret layer, which they hadn't done previously to this. I'll link the video in the show notes, but the big takeaways I took from that are the following. One, Wizards is experimenting with distributing products in a manner to niche audiences. Two, Wizards is looking to experiment with separating the game system or game engine of Magic the Gathering from the creative intellectual property and lore that they've built up. 
And then three, reading between the lines, Wizards is not planning on stopping the potential crossovers with other IPs in the future, potentially outside of secret layers even. So this all led to renewed vitriol among the online magic community directed at Wizards, with the most urgent call being a call for the Commander's Rule Committee to take action, the RC being a player-led panel that, reported, that reportedly operates separately from Wizards, though they stay in communication with them, to manage the official EDH ban list. Uh, many are saying that the Rules Committee should preemptively ban the Walking Dead cards in one form or another for the purpose of quote-unquote sending Wizards a message that this is not something that they should be doing and that the player base would and stand for it. Uh, the logic being that if these cards are targeted to commander players primarily, by banning them in commander, there would be less demand for these, and as such, wizards would not have as many orders, leading it to be a failed experiment financially, leading them to not do this again in the future. Well, the end result was that on Friday, the Rules Committee announced they would not be banning the Walking Dead cards, the logic being that the ban list should not be used as an attempt to, uh, in an attempt to dictate corporate policy and should be used primarily for game balance purposes. If a car, for, for example, if a card is too busted mechanically, then it should be banned. Uh, however, with the case of the Walking Dead cards, um, without being able to test them or seeing if they would be broken, there is no reason at this time to add them to the ban list, though they did acknowledge the various reasons the community did want to ban them. This led to the last fury of outcry from the community. Many content creators have called for a boycott of Wizards products entirely in order to try to sift policy, and some have even proposed alternatives to EDH formats that would functionally be similar except for banning the Walking Dead cards. I won't detail who called for what and what was said exactly, but suffice to say, it was a pretty dark time to be a Magic fan online. Even if you didn't mind the Walking Dead cards in and of themselves or what they stood for, the monopolized online conversation with lots of negativity and gloom and doom just made it not a great place to be online. So that's the recap of the events. So what is my take on these? Uh, before I continue, I want to make clear I am in no way compensated or selling for Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro or anyone else. I mean, again, I get like 12 listeners max per episode, so why would I of all people be get paid to spread my not overtly critical opinion of Wizards? Um, again, not to bury the lead. I mean, sir, maybe if you disagree with me, my listenership goes from 12 listeners down to three or something like that. But hey, I'm doing this so for me and so that I can understand why I like Magic Gathering better. So, uh, you know, you're free to listen, not listen, but you know, hopefully at the very least you're able to, to listen and understand where I'm coming from and where those who aren't as upset with these cards might be coming from. So, as I noted before, I am definitely down on the fact that these mechanically unique black border cards are only available for limited time offering. Magic has done this in the past to mixed results. Uh, the most extreme end, you have the Nathalani Dragon promo from Dragon Call back in 1994, as well as the Mana Crypt uh, you know, being originally printed only as a book promo card. Uh, in more recent years, you do have mechanically unique Biobox promos that lasted from Dominaria through course of 2021. And if you squint just right and look at it, you know the fact that some cards from Commander Precons are technically mechanically unique and only available in the Precon decks could be seen as the same thing as this, though, again, you are getting 99 other cards as well, so that makes the sting a little bit less, um, and the pre-con decks are generally more available throughout the year or so, so not exactly the same thing, but to some degree, right, we've definitely seen issues where commander staples printed in these cards are, you know, not as available. Um, the other thing in Magic Histories this draws comparison to is the reserve list, a selection of cards from early years that after collectors complained that reprints would negatively impact their collector's values, Wizards made the decision to promise to never reprint those cards again. This 
the fact that there are no current plans to reprint these mechanically unique cards in the future, and until they do so, they will be time-locked uh, to only those who bought the secret layer or were able to get magic cards back in 93-94, feels very similar to each other, right? Um, we're never going to get more copies of you know these new locked cards, just like we're never going to get new cards of the Black Lotus. If the reserve list was seen as a generally bad idea, why is the secret layers considered not a bad idea, right? And again, They've said they could potentially reprint it, not in the exact same way in the future, but you know, at least at some point in the future. No promises to be made, which corporate legal, like if the reserve list was a fact of a corporate promise that you know they can't break now, um, I think this would be another corporate prom- Like I don't think Wizards wants to make another corporate promise uh, for fa- fewer false advertising. The fact that the secret layer does not equally service all parts of the globe, I think is another downside of this, meaning that certain countries are out of luck, frankly. Um, and... However, looking at how complex global shipping logistics are, I think it's more a matter of time than anything else where secret layers will be able to become universal. Um, perhaps if the secret layer came out in a year or two, um, once they've expanded the service instead of now, this point of contention would be more limited. Uh, more on why I think this first happened now as opposed to later um, and later this episode. Now, part of the idea that makes this limited availability stink is the fact that, especially for Legacy, if these cards do end up becoming busted, it's really going to make these formats play to win. I mean, you know, we've already seen it with the new Rick slotting into Legacy Humans and the new Glenn card doing well in MTGO Vintage tournaments. Uh, While Wizards, again, said they were designing for splashy effects and Commander, um, you know, that, so that, that makes it hard to be broken in other formats. I think the community doesn't really have a lot of faith in that, you know, in their ability to balance cards well. Um, I mean, you know, look at how the buy a box promos for Kenrith from Eldraine or Nexus of Fate from Core 2019 were fairly dominant cards in their respective standards to the point where Nexus of Fate needed to get banned. Um, and they didn't intend for buy a box promos to be that. Um, plus, there's always the opportunity down the line for a previously not broken card to find new power. Uh, the most notable example of this I can find is Lion's Eye Diamond, which was legitimately a bad card when it was initially printed, but became the cornerstone of various decks in Legacy and Vintage to the point where it needed to be restricted in Vintage. Um, it's that powerful. And that's because new rules changes several years after it was originally printed, um, and new cards being printed that comboed with it made it that it became a powerful card because of what eventually came to be around it. Side tangent, I think the outcry with the Walking Dead secret layer is because it was announced at the sa- partly because it was announced as the same day as a standard ban and restricted announcement that hit Euro, but not the new boogeyman of standard, the four caller Omnath Locus of Creation. Uh, this weekend, uh, the Magic wa- Grand Finals or Worlds or whatever it's called, an Om- is happening uh, or happened, I guess, by the time this episode comes out, and Omnath made up seventy percent of the meta. Uh, many perceive the fact that Wizards did not ban the Splashy Mythic from the new set that had only been on sale in paper for two days as a greedy move, which, you know, makes sense from a corporate perspective. Don't ban the card from the most recent set that has yet to really sell in order to not depress sales of that product and let the competitive scene be dominated by this tier zero deck uh, you know, until, you know, a couple months down the line when they can eventually ban it, kind of like they did with Oko last year. You know, the fact that over the last years, we've had more standard bans than I think had ever been done in Magic's history made people really believe that Wizards' ban lists are dictated more by monetary purposes as opposed to the gameplay balance, which, you know, when perceived as a, cor- cor- a greedy corporate cash grab, uh, come- one corporate greedy cash grab on the heels of another, um, you know, things blow up and people are more upset, primed to be more upset. So back on topic, is Wizards printing mechanically unique tournament legal cards in a limited access drop a bad thing? Yes. If is this if this drop is successful, is it likely they will be emboldened to do so again? 
Yes. However, I think the biggest difference I have from the rest of the online community is that I don't perceive this as a reason to stop loving or playing Magic the Gathering. In my opinion, while there are new game pieces out there, because there are a handful of cards I don't agree with now, how they're designed or how they're distributed, that does not mean that the 27,000 cards and the 27 years of magic that have come out up to this point are now invalid. Magic is not lesser because there's a problematic card out there. If anything, it is more because there are more cards out there and there will presumably be more people involved in the community because of it. At worst, I think this is the exact same game I've always loved to play and appreciate, plus a few cards I don't like. If I don't want to play my deck, I won't. I'm not a competitive legacy player, so maybe I'm speaking of a place of privilege and relative safety where if the Walking Dead cards do become a tier 0 deck in the format, I won't be affected, but all of the memories and connections and friendships and hours spent on this game have not been wasted because a few pieces of cardboard I take some umbrage with have been printed. The best part about Magic is that it is a game with is in fact is a game that is in fact many different games that happen to use the same game pieces in different ways. This so is all about finding places to be positive and appreciate those pieces in different contexts. I love Draft Chaff and Jank. They never soap in any competitive standard constructed deck, but I can have fond memories of wacky brews and killer pieces of 40 cards in draft. This mentality extends to the argument that the lore has been ruined by this. Many people call inserting characters from a non-magic IP quote-unquote disrespectful to the 27 years of lore of magic, and that wizards will stop making their own original lore in favor of cramming sets full of other intellectual properties and characters. First off, I highly doubt that this is the case. I mean, Magic is in, actively in development with the Russo brothers, last we heard, to develop a Netflix series on Magic the Gathering creative property. Again, just because a brand new card from a plane who, of, whose lore you don't enjoy is now in the game, doesn't mean that the lore that's come before can no longer be appreciated. Secondly, and this is my personal opinion, Magic has always been about a ga- being a planeswalker who can travel between different realities and worlds. I love anime about traveling to another world and exploring alternate timelines such as Stein's Gate, so maybe this is just me and my own headcanon, but I always thought that other realities and IPs are just another plane's walk away. In my early years, I definitely identified as a Vorstos in that my favorite cards to collect were legendary creatures and and I loved the ability of magic cards to be able to tell a story through this non-traditional medium of trading card games as opposed to a novel or movie or TV show. However, I also strongly identify as a Melvin, especially more so nowadays, one who loves the mechanical intricacies of the game. I haven't yet covered this on the podcast, but I'm a huge fan of custom card creation. In fact, several years ago, I created an entire custom cube based on the Super Smash Brothers series, and I come back every so often to a few design files on my computer to create series draft sets based on Sonin Jump and Disney franchises. Uh, you know. Taking a brief tangent, you know, while I don't claim to be a super fan of The Walking Dead, from my limited knowledge of the show, the mechanics they chose to portray the characters, separate from the controversy, are actually pretty spot on. Negan forces players to make a decision of which of their creatures to sacrifice, which happens in the show. Rick supports his, you know, his compadres and, and other humans. Daryl is able to take out zombies that come after him, but they're an ever-growing horde and he'll eventually be overwhelmed which plays very well into red-green. Missone focuses on her build, her skills with weapons, and Glenn, I actually really like what they did with Skulk. And it was originally in Shadows Over Innistrad as a potentially blue-black mechanic, but the fact that it imposes rules about what can 
can't block the Skulker in question, and that that rules benefits smaller creatures especially, is very white in flavor. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that hopefully more white Skulker cards in the future, even if the name doesn't really match fit the mechanic in the color as much. So, when Aaron Forsyth on the weekly NTG stream talked about how they're planning on potentially exploring separating the Magic game engine from Magic Creative, I personally don't see an issue with this. I believe it was Ben Stark who said that if Magic cards were stripped of all flavor and were just numbers and game rules with codes to help you identify which card is which with no art, he'd still love the game. And I agree. Now, there's definitely something to be said from a game design perspective of having cultural and aesthetic resonance that helps this game survive and thrive and bring on new new players. I mean, that's what The Walking Dead is doing. They're banking on the resonance of what the cards do in The Walking Dead uh, from The Walking Dead cards with what happened in TV so to bring in new players, right? And I'm not saying we need to go to the extreme that Ben Stark is saying of there's no flavor whatsoever, but as a system, I think the Magic game engine is incredibly robust and deeper than almost any other game system out there, digital or analog. I mean, not many can say, you know, game system can say they are Turing complete. And, you know, mechanically, they do have a way to indicate they're not part of the Magic timeline, you know, the triangular hollow foil on the bottom. So... I really have faith in the Magic game system. I think that it can stand alone. I really would love to see it stand alone, especially given how the creative lore in terms of the story, novels, comic books, the t- upcoming TV. So the creative, the creative side is getting a chance to stand alone. Why not the game system? I don't really buy the idea that Magic players will have their immersion broken if they have new IPs in place. I mean, is having an elephant equip a sword and a pair of lightning greaves really that much more immersive than Glenn? Or is having a vehicle crew another vehicle make sense mechanically or flavorfully? And what the heck is going on flavorfully in some of the more spiky decks, you know, such as Kikijiki or, you know, Four Color Snoko, Death Shadow, KCI? You know, sir, they could have gone the Silver Bordered or Godzilla Frame Path, but I'll touch on the logic of why they didn't in the future and why that makes sense. But I also seen as a double standard why, you know, when we see the Forgotten Realms coming over next summer to cross over with D&D, just because it comes from an in-house property at Wizards of the Coast, that makes it okay. You know, I'd also argue that crossing over into other IPs is literally magic as Richard Garfield intended. The first expansion set, Arabian Nights, was supposed to be magic set up of the 1001 Arabian Nights with cards like Zad, Alibaba, and Ali from Cairo, as well as a magic lamp. The fact that there would be the, the idea would be there would be unique card backs keeping the deckmaster card name uh, in order to have a unified game system. You know, they also did this with Portal's The Three Kingdoms set. Of course, they eventually chose to not have the separate backs and later retroactively changed Arabian Nights to be on the plane of Rabaya, a wizard's, you know, plane similar to Arabian Nights, uh, for the reason to fo- they wanted to focus on original IP as opposed to other properties for, you know, even if they were in the public domain. Uh, Wizards does have a scale on how likely they are to return to planes, uh, named the Rabaya scale, because, you know, they're not likely to return to Rabaya for the IP reasons. Um, now, some have pointed to the fact that the Rabaya scale exists, uh, it suggests that non-magic IP is something Wizards is completely unable to do and will never happen. And I have a few rebuttals to that. First, the Rabaya scale reflects returning to a plane in a standard legal set. Uh, secret layers are not standard legal, so this doesn't really apply here. Secondly, the scales represent the likelihood of doing the thing, right? Storm scale being mechanics um, or going back to a plane for the Rebias scale um, as things currently stand without any changes. That does not mean they're entirely impossible. 
For example, Madness was an 8 out of 10 on the Storm scale, meaning it was highly unlikely to be ever reprinted in a standard legal set. But it was reprinted in Shadows Over Innistrad because circumstances came together just right that made it possible. Similarly, the reason Rabaya is a 10 on it for its namesake scale is because it is unlikely Wizards, non-Wizards IP would ever get approval for the set, specifically 1001 Arabian Nights. Now, that would be a reasonable assumption that Wizards won't get IP from other companies to put on their cards. However, if the stars were to align, say a corporate-approved crossover, that limitation would not be an issue and it could happen, which is the case here. So, to close the loop on the discussion of the death of Magic IP, I think the news is greatly overblown. One, pre-existing Magic IP is not going away just because other IPs are now introduced. Two, there is no plans to stop creating and developing Magic IP. Three, Magic is already about multiverses and alternate realities. And four, the idea that it's less immersive because, you know, some, when there's some other nonsense we get into games is pretty laughable to me. And when you look at the big picture of everything Magic's done in the past, that's just part of what Magic is about, always trying to push forward the boundary. Now, I'd actually like to take off my Magic fan hat and put on a product developer hat. In my day job, I work in digital advertising, launching products uh, and developing processes and operations to help involve sco- that to help companies you know make money through advertising on websites. A lot of what we were told on the stream from the Wizards and how Wizards planning on experimenting using Secret Lair uh, matches up with a lot of what I see in my day to day job. So first off. From public statements, we've seen executives say that Watsi and ha- from Hasbro say that their goal is to double Magic's revenue in the next five years. I'll touch more on the fact that Magic is in fact a commercial product toward the end of the show, but taking that at face value and as a given, there are two ways Magic as a whole can do this. One, increase the average amount of money current Magic players spend. This can be through either raising prices on current products, something I don't think anyone wants to see. Uh, it can also be through creating more products that we want to spend uh, that's targeting the same demographic. So instead of spending $50 a month, we spend $100 a month because of that brand new product. This can be either be through increased set number of set releases out there. If anyone's being paying attention, the number of supplemental products have gone up dramatically in the last few years. Or maybe taking over more of the enfranchised Magic players' time, you know, such as expanding the digital as well as paper products. Um, you know, and why does Magic want to grow? Well, obviously there's the stakeholder problem, but the other thing I think is that there's more competition now, right? We have Legends of the Vutera, we have Hearthstone, other ways pe- people can have their entertainment taken care of. More and more games are coming out to take away Magic players' time and thus the dollars from Wizards. So, you know, they want to be able to double, to grow that uh, in, in, by doing that, right? And, you know, when I, when, if you say that you know, Magic wants to do it to be able to keep up with their competitors, they have to innovate because in a competitive marketplace, you have to innovate and try new things. Otherwise, you're going to fall further and further behind while your competitors innovate. And if the competitors are innovating and you're not, they're going to take away players. If they're taking away players, then you don't have as much money going into the game. Now, obviously, that's bad for corporate, but from a Magic player's perspective, if there's less money going into the game, they're going to invest less money into Magic, which means we get less product and we get less of the game we love, which is why it's important for Magic you know, to be competitive with its uh, pure card games out there. Okay, so the other way to double Magic revenue in the next five years is to double the player base. After all, as enfranchised Magic players, there's only so much our wallets can take, and many of us are probably already maxing out how much we can reasonably afford to spend on this game. So how does Wizards try to expand the number of Magic players out there? 
One they've been doing is reworking the new onboarding products. For example, Commander is now the most popular form of playing Magic out there. You probably know friends, if you're not already, uh, who play Commander, and that could be a good way to get started playing Magic. So, you know, having a pre-con deck that's a Commander deck as opposed to the 60-card Planeswalker deck would be a good way to do that. Um, That's why there's been a lot of focus on Commander things this year. Again, also making Arena more available, such as launching it on mobile later this year and having products like Jumpstart, which take away the hard part of building a deck and you can just start playing, you know, that's all part of the strategy. So where The Walking Dead comes in is growing the scene by finding magic-adjacent players. As much as people made fun of the statement that Walking Dead is magic-adjacent, I don't think it's too far from the truth. You know, the fact that someone going to San Diego Comic-Con will see the Walking Dead booth next to the Magic the Gathering booth means that if they like the Walking Dead, there's a chance that they may be interested in Magic the Gathering product. Vice versa, if you're a Magic the Gathering fan, there's a chance maybe you like comic books, maybe you like zombies, maybe you like that kind of fiction, that nerdy fiction. Walking Dead might be something you're into, right? So there is a crossover there, right? As much as people made fun of that. So the same applies to the Godzilla crossover we saw in Ikoria, and definitely the upcoming Dungeons & Dragons crossover we're seeing next year. The Walking Dead is a comic book franchise before it was a TV show, and I know many local game stores, mine included, happen to be double as the local comic book store as well. So ignoring the fact that The Walking Dead isn't strictly fantasy and magic, the same geeky people who can presumably presume to try out Magic the Gathering, or at least have heard of it, will be Walking Dead fans as opposed to someone who has never heard of The Walking Dead. Now, some have scoffed at the idea that a $50 set of cards and a presumably collector-focused and first and foremost would entice a Walking Dead fan to actually start playing. And maybe that's fair. I know a lot of Godzilla fans, for example, picked up the Godzilla cards to display but not actually play. But while it's only anecdotal, on the Walking Dead subreddit, they had a post about these cards and about half the comments were saying, oh, I might actually start playing Magic now. Right, And from my personal experience, I have proxied the Star Wars The Gathering custom card set made by Reddit user Soul of Zendikar and actually gotten some Star Wars fans who had not played Magic previously to start to now be invested in the game and spend some of their own money because I played these custom cards that had another IP on them. It's all about that capture funnel. If you sell a million copies of these and only 1% end up becoming new Magic players, that's still 10,000 new Magic players who now may be spending money every month on Magic. And just because they were lured in by the Walking Dead cards. That's what Wizards is after, right? That's why, for example, having Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, which we'll come back to later this episode, is a way to get Hamilton fans to start subscribing to Disney+. Plus. And certain, some of them will end the subscription after that first month it came out. But some of them will keep Disney+, Plus and watch the other stuff on Disney+, Plus because Hamilton is now on there. Right? Okay, so why do two secret layer drops, which are geo-limited and have uneven costs to the rest of the world around the U.S.? Uh, two reasons. One is they are trying to do niche targeting, and the other is that so it doesn't affect the product pipeline if this experiment fails. So first, niche targeting. Uh, this was mentioned on the weekly MTG stream, but Magic is playing with the idea of hyper-targeting their audiences. I know the, the phrase, this product is not for you, has been said many times, and it's kind of you know, a sarcastic, uh, cynical view on the way the magic, uh, the magic pipeline has been lately. Um, but I mean, you know, any product manager is going to understand market segmentation. I mean, the whole point of the player psychographics, Timmy, Johnny, Spike, Melvin, Morvarthos, are just another way to segment out which products will have appeal to which players. 
It just so happens that up to this point, Magic sets have been able to include cards that appeal to all player psychographics. But think of the other ways you can segment Magic players. Maybe you have a limited versus constructed players, with constructed being further segmented into different formats of standard, modern, legacy, commander, popper, and whatever other format is out there. Yes, they can make products like Modern Horizons that are primarily targeted toward one set of players, you know, modern players, but they have appealed to other players. Limited players love the limited format, commander players get new staples as well, and even popper players can have new cards for their decks. The experimentation, for example, with Booster Fun is another me- is another way to segment the, the players, right? You have players who love playing the game, but you also have players who love collecting pieces and players who love the thrill of cracking open packs and seeing what they might get. Uh, this is why showcase cards, collector boosters, and set boosters have been introduced. And of course, you can also segment Magic players as competitive and franchise players, uh, casual and franchise players who don't com- play at competitions, completely new players, and yet-to-be Magic players. I think the main thing we've seen is a shift in Magic products that no longer try to hit multiple demographics at the same time, but focus on one specific demographic. And sir, it may not be able to have as wide appeal, and which is why this, you know, this product is not for you, but it does appeal to that specific player. Right? Going back to Mark Rosewater's 20 years of design, uh, 20 lessons talk at GDC, the idea is having a product that some people will love and some will hate is better than having a product which everyone is okay with but doesn't really love, right? If you can target the small audience and have them really love your product and buy it en masse, that's a success, even if it wasn't a wide success broadly, right? Because if you're targeting toward a smaller audience, there's smaller cost and therefore there's a smaller profit that you need to hit, basically, right? So, you know, I've seen people wonder why not make a separate set of maybe commander decks, right? That would just these five secret layer, instead of just five secret layer cards and have the commander decks be separate from magic normally, right? If they want to separate the magic system from the IP, create Walking Dead the Gathering, right? And then create cards that use the magic game system, but are selling as a separate Walking Dead product. Couple of reasons here. One, Wizards does not have unlimited human resources. If they are taking designers from their team to work on a, you know, The Walking Dead, The Gathering, EDH decks for potential new players, those designers are not going to be working on the next standard set, next supplemental set, or next set of pre-con decks. I get the idea of, you know, testing fast, I'll get the idea of testing fast later, but given that Wizards does have proven money makers, they don't want to take away car, uh, players, uh, designers from those those proven money makers to go on some wild hair, hair brain scheme, right? They want to be able to iterate and test fast on a relatively limited scale that doesn't have a huge development cost. Developing five cards for a secret layer drop is a lot easier than developing some full decks, right? A lower development cost also makes the break even point lower than what need, than uh, what would need to be for a larger deck. Which brings us to economies of scale and targeting, number two. In order to justify making uh, The Walking Dead the gathering EV8 stack and make it cost effective, they need to produce them en masse and make it widely available at mass market stores like Walmart and Target as well as your local LGS. And maybe it helps those stores out, but that doesn't one, that doesn't accomplish the goal of experimenting to find and being able to hyper-target the Walking Dead audience, right? That's what online selling is really good at, right? Enabling people to buy directly and be able to get exactly what it is and you get the information that you need as well. As on the side, you know, I see this all my time in digital advertising. If you take an advertising campaign for something that doesn't have a defined audience, like 
go see the newest Disney movie, right? And you want to reach as wide an audience as possible, you'll have a relatively low click-through rate. You'll have a lot of it be out there, but you won't have as much engagement, right? Um, the click-through rate will be lower, lower clicks per impression that you see. However, if you target an ad toward a very niche audience, uh, you'll no be interested in your product. Say, for example, Card Kingdom targeting magic players by going through magic content creators, right? You know, they'll have a higher engagement rate as if opposed to they throw it on CNN or Fox News or something, right? Hyper-targeting is a way to basically get the most bang for your buck, and that's what Matt Moses is doing here with these, you know, these products are not for you, very hyper-targeted products such as the Walking Dead Secret Lair. So basically, because Wizards is trying to intensely hit a smaller audience with these cards, not the magical audience and arts, but specifically the Walking Dead fans who already play magic or could be convinced to play magic, it doesn't make sense for them to market or distribute this in a way similar to what they've been doing with other mass market products, you know, to hit as wide an audience as possible for their standard legal sets or commander precons. I mean, we've already seen this, right, with distributing from the vault to LGSs a while back. It was really hard to access these. Some LGSs had a lot of extra ones because their player base didn't want it and then some LGS completely ran up and had to jack up the prices to you know make it to you know to help with meet meet demand right so like supply meeting demand so you know this is a way to have supply equal demand uh, from wizard's point of view now to the points I've alluded a few times about product experimentation I now personally view Secret Layers as Wizards' way of experimenting and testing new products, similar to how Silver Border previously was testing ground for new magic mechanics and technologies. As an example, let's turn again to my day job in advertising. If I want to implement code on page to a site, I don't just push that code 100% without testing it, right? I instead segment out maybe 1% to 5% of traffic on a site, uh, and you know, and then also another 1% to 5%. On one of those segments, I'll put the code change. On the other, I won't. And I'll measure some KPIs or key performance indicators, you know, are users clicking through more on this segment with the change versus not? Are they staying on page longer versus not? Are they engaging with the page more versus not, right? And then I'll see, does this code change have the effect I want it to have? If it does, great, I'll roll it out to the rest of the site, right? But if it doesn't, then I've rolled it out to 100% of this, and I, and I rolled it out to 100% of the site, then I screwed up my data, right? I don't have a way of seeing, those, is this actually better or not, right? And this sort of testing is part and parcel for any product manager out there. Magic is no exception. Again, rather than trying to inject this into an experimentation, you know, this, this kind of experimentation, which they have no way of will be knowing it'll be good or bad or not, into their main products, test it in beta with a secret layer. That's the logic here. And it'll be at a relatively low cost. If the experiment fails and no one buys the product, okay, they didn't screw over the standard legal sets by having this in there. And if it does work out, great. Then you can start scaling it up to other places. Uh, to take the famous phrase from Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, innovative companies fail fast and they fail often. By being able to test these product offerings in small controlled settings with limited scope, they were able to quickly refine without needing to wait years to adapt, much as how they would with a standard legal set. Um, or for example, when we were asking, hey, make white more playable in ED8s, that's been years in the making when, since we started making the request because it's taken Wizards that long to get around to being able to do this. As another example, see how Sagas took two years from getting printed in Dominaria to getting printed in Theros Beyond Death because they had to wait to see if player feedback would possibly receive Sagas. Now, another example from a hobby of mine outside of Magic. Box office news. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I have a weekly podcast where I go over into how much money the box office make each week. Yeah, I know, starting a box office during the pandemic, a, a podcast about the box office during the pandemic isn't the best move, but it has been a lot of interesting stories. Uh, one of them being that in recent months, 
last August, Disney made the move to test if putting their live-action remake of Mulan on Disney Plus behind the Premier Access paywall, paying additional 30 on top of the $7 monthly fee, would be a good move for them since putting... Mulan in the theaters when people didn't want to go because of, you know, the pandemic uh, would be a bad idea, especially after Chris Nolan's Tenet did terribly. So maybe Disney Plus would be a good good way for Disney to distribute their films in the future and make money. Now, let's see. They could have tested this going full hog in and just put, you know, next MCU film, Black Widow on Disney Plus. But that doesn't make sense, right? Because if it fails, then they've kind of screwed over and lost out on all that money Black Widow is almost guaranteed to make whenever it comes to the box office, right? Whenever normal comes back to the box office. So they tested that with Mulan, uh, a relative, a film that has a similar budget, right? But it does not part of a larger picture of interconnected films like uh, MCU is, right? Similarly, Mulan isn't really in the consideration for any Oscar films, right? Like, uh, like Pixar's Soul, maybe, right? So they tested that with Mulan, which was already planned to come out first, and. The results seem to be that it wasn't as successful, right? Sorry, initially they said it was okay, but since then, in fact, last week, Disney just announced they are putting Soul on Disney Plus without the uh, 30, additional $30 paywall, right? So the negative press or maybe the uh, or maybe the amount of money they got back was not enough to justify putting the MCU and other films onto Disney Plus behind the paywall. So they pushed the MCU back to 2021, uh, Soul is coming to Pixar this this Christmas on Disney Plus without a paywall, and that's because they were able to do testing with Mulan in this situation, right? They if they had jumped in feet first, they could have been screwed on for years to come, right? So you know, hopefully you know things get better and Disney's able to get that. Wear your masks, wash your hands, whatever. So back to magic. As a product designer at work, I completely understand why Wizards is leveraging Secret Layers as an experimentation platform on what specific niche audiences within the larger base they may or may not want to target. Uh, one example, I've se- one question I've seen a lot: Why not put these cards in Silver Border or use the Godzilla frame? Uh, beyond the fact that this is probably an experiment to see what will and won't be successful in terms of IP crossover, and they already have data on My Little Pony and Ikoria, uh, they also bought. Uh, they also brought up the fact that, for some reason, uh, the community sees Silver Border cards as not real magic cards, and they don't want them to be played uh, in command, and Silver Border cards don't be played in command. Now, whether or not they deserve the flack for saying that there is a barrier to asking people to play your Silver Border card as a commander, which you can rule zero... Um, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But the fact that if Wizards' design goal is to get these cards to be played in Commander and Silver Border cards are by definition up to this point something that people don't consider to be real magic cards based on their financial value or them not appearing on EDH's rec uh, as you know, as potential commanders. And I can't see how many you know commander decks there are that use Silver Border cards. Um, if this is a roadblock, you design around the roadblock. That's what designers do. They saw a problem. They want their cards to be played in Commander. Silver Border cards are not currently being played in Commander, and they want them to be played in Commander. So make them playable in Commander by making them Black Border. That's what happened here, right? It's kind of like in Limited when you see cards that say, this creature must attack each turn if able, or this creature cannot block. That is me- meant to be a signal to you that this card is meant to be played aggressively and not defensively. 
right? And so, you know, if the natural tendency in playtesting was to hold it back defensively, that's what they wanted to not do. You put on rules text to make it act like that. And that is what's happening here in terms of, with this with this set. And hey, maybe this is a call to the broader community where if you're going to treat silver border cards this way, maybe you need to accept them. And then so that future crossover cards can be played in, in Commander while also, you know, being silver border and not having this issue. Okay, so we've looked at the beef of this debate. The uneven distribution in the crossover of non-magic IP. Uh, we looked at the business and design reasoning for why these cards came out the way they did, uh, as opposed to other options for experimentation purposes. But to wrap this episode up, I wanted to comment on some broader community trends I noticed uh, during this discussion, the, the discussion about these cards. First off, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think Magic players have a p unhealthy parasocial relationship with the game of Magic as something more than what it is. Uh, many see it as, well, maybe not unhealthy. I'll take that back. Uh, but they do have a parasocial relationship of making Magic more than what it is, right? Many see it as a life-changing thing, as some ideal zenith of what gaming is, of what, uh, you know, of what a community can be. A common phrase is that Magic is about the gathering, right? And all of that is true. Right? I'm involved in many communities like Magic with various hobbies, such as Super Smash Brothers, the anime community, heck, the box office community I talked about before. Friendships, relationships, and memories and experience I've had extend beyond the product I buy at the local game store and have shaped me into who I am. I completely buy into all that. That's, I'm not discrediting any of that whatsoever. However, that being said, at its core, Magic has and always will be a commercial product produced by a company in seek of profits. Magic was a byproduct of Richard Garfield trying to pitch his game, Robo Rally, and instead having to come up with a way to leverage the printer relationships Wizards had at the time to make playing cards because it was cheap to produce. I think people get squicky about the idea that their hobby and identity is tied up in a commercial product produced by a publicly traded camp. Uh, company in pursuit of profits with shareholders and that strategic moves by the company that better their game are just really about improving the bottom dollar. It just so happened to be aligned with that. And I think that, you know, people, like, again, magic is many things to many people, right? It can be. Magic can be commander to people. It can also be limited. It can also be uh, constructed. It can also be all of these other things outside of the game, content creation, the community as well. But it's also a product. It's also a product as well. It's always been all of those things at the same time. Never just one of those things. And not to sound want to saying I, I'm I'm the enlightened one or whatever. But I think being able to take a step back and realize that magic is a byproduct of capitalism, and being able and always remembering that can help temper expectations and temper extreme emotions that one may have. Again, that's not to say that any of the non-product outcomes of the games, the community, the content, the friends, the memories, experiences, those aren't valid. I'm not saying that, right? And those, and I'm not saying that those things are capitalistic in nature. They're not. But they do have a common tie to a product that is. And like Mark often says, when player expectations are not met, they get upset and disappointed. And in this case, player expect unrealistic expectations of what they want magic to be in their head, something that is a pure, untouched by capitalism gameplay experience, right? That has a community around it. When it's something other than that, people get upset. And that's what happened here, right? Beyond that parasocial relationship between players and what they imagine magic to be, I will also say I noticed a fair bit of gatekeeping. People saying that Magic was no longer what they was, it should stay what it was, and they, they they don't care if they don't get new players in from the Walking Dead community because you know it's changing the game is and it's not for them. I've already touched on how 
Magic has always been a game that changes, always been innovating, right? And it always has to be innovating in order to stay ahead of its competition so that money will keep flowing in to help developing the game we love. People got freaked out when we had the six edition change loop, when we had frame changes, right? When they introduced so many different new things to the game, right? But all of those eventually over time became part of Magic. I think The Walking Dead will eventually become just another part of Magic as well, right? And, you know, People, I, I think people saying that they don't care if they don't have new fans coming in because it's no longer the magic that I knew what it was. That just felt icky. Like, people, someone commented that, do we really think that players will pick up a game with 27 years of history and 200 games of pages of game rules just because they bought a $50 set of five collectible cards? Well, I mean, with that attitude, will anyone who's starring the game more other than in 1993, 1984 really be a true fan of the game if they weren't there from the beginning? No, of course not, right? If you start playing Magic today because you found some cards in the attic and you just started playing with them or because you bought the secret layer card, the secret layer uh, drop from The Walking Dead or you've been playing since 93, you are all legitimate Magic players, right? However and wherever you want to enjoy playing the game. I mean, I started playing Magic 22 years when it was 22 years old and probably had 175 pages of game rules because I thought dragons looked cool on the Dragons of Tarkir boxes, right? And, you know, if we can get so passionate about a game we love so much, I think fans of The Walking Dead who want to play the game because of the new cards that feature their favorite characters will be able to learn the magic rules if they really want to because fans do crazy things, as we've seen this week, right? I don't ever want to be telling someone you're not allowed to play Magic or enjoy Magic because the cards you like are not cards I like, right? Like, yes, in E-Dates, I hate playing against Cyclonic Rift, but you are free to play Cyclonic Rift because if that's how you like playing Magic, play Magic that way, right? And so, you know, that extends to people who don't want to play Magic against the Walking Dead cards. But you're free to play with 27,000 plus cards that have been printed up to this point, and the thousand more that are not going to feature The Walking Dead that, have been, that are going to be printed in the coming years. Don't tell others they can't start playing Magic because they, don't, they like cards that you don't like. And that also extends to not being an asshole to people who disagree with you. I saw a lot of hate being thrown toward the Wizards, you know, employees, and the Rules Committee when it came to being clear that they would not be doing what players wanted to do, be it rolling back the cards, printing them in Silver Border, or banning the cards. Calling them, saying they have no integrity, they're city people, they're sold out, they're being paid off, or all of these unfounded claimants, etc., etc. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just more willing to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially with the Rules Committee. Like, I don't think any amount of bribe money from Wizards given all the shit that they've built this last week, I don't think any of that would be able to justify that. So they're doing this because they really love the game outside of, you know, whatever money can give them, right? And again, a reminder, I'm not affiliated with Wizards or compensated by them in any way in case you think I'm selling for them. And when it comes to Wizards employees specifically, maybe this is my own experience in corporate America, but the most successful and productive teams I've seen uh, all can unify behind a single vision. Now, not every employee on that team will agree with that decision in question, right? In fact, many may have been completely against the idea when it was first pitched. But once management decides on the course of action, the best teams has everyone pitch in behind that vision 100%, right? In order to make it a reality, not holding anything back. Teams with members who were against the final decision uh, and chose to put in minimal effort because it wasn't what they wanted, right? And, you know, or bad talk to the product. And, you know, ultimately that that team would fa- crash and burn because, you know, not everyone was on 
And, you know, in my head, I think it's better to support ideas you don't think will succeed, right? With everything you have, if if management dictated that so, so that, you know, you can be in a position when, if you are right, and if it ultimately fails, you can say, okay, I made these calls. You now have my trust that I have vision on what this is going to be. Your voice will then be valued more. And on the flip side, hey, if you are wrong, you can take it as a learning experience on, on where you were wrong and how it will actually be a success in the future and make a better product because of what you did not what you thought you knew that you actually did not know, right? I said, no, I've been on both sides. I've been somebody who pitched an idea to a team that no one else was behind, but we went with it anyway. I got people to rally behind me, even if they didn't originally agree with it. And hey, that was a really successful product I launched. I've also been on a place where someone else pitched the product that I didn't believe in, but I eventually got behind it, right? Not because I did believe it, but that's because it was decided by my, my manager and the product were not correct. I was I had to eat crow and said, yeah, I was wrong. I know, now know better. And I've also, unfortunately, been in the position where I didn't give my 100% on the product and it ended up failing, right? And that team was a mess, right, at the end of the day. And for everything that Wizards has done, the fact that they've been able to keep this product going for 27 years, right, and the fact that they do kind of have all this history behind it, I think that, you know, they've learned this this tactic, right? You No team lasts this long. No company lasts this long by being that dysfunctional where people are self-sabotaging products, even if they, especially because they disagree with it, right? Giving it everything all once a decision has been made is effective team 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 uh teamwork right i mean in the military right if you're a soldier and you disagree with what your commanding officer says and you give half-heartedly that could get somebody killed right i'm not saying magic and game design is the same degree as a military experience but right like it's kind of, that's how the effective leadership comes about everyone rallies behind a central idea even if not everyone initially bought it anyway this has been a super long episode, and you know it took a couple days for me to put out later than I than I would normally because I wanted to make sure I got all my thoughts down accurately and comprehensively, so I wouldn't have to talk about this again. But those are my thoughts on the Walking Dead secret lair. I hope for those of you who are excited by the drop that you get to play with and enjoy them to your heart's content. I hope for those of you who don't want to play with or against these cards that you have play groups where no one got the cards and you don't ever come across somebody who did get these cards, um, so it never com- becomes an issue. But in case that those two groups happen to meet, please remember to be kind to each other and mature adults about it all. No name calling, no sit talking, right? After all, despite being based on the product of Magic the Gathering, which is a product, Magic is so much more than that. It's the game, and then the game, it's the gathering. In any case, this casting of Pod is slowly coming to its resolution. Despite the controversy, or maybe because of it, let me know what you thought, right? What did you think of the Walking Dead secret cards? And did anything I say this episode help shift your perspective on it, especially if you were initially against it? Did you pick up a, a set of Walking Dead secret lair? Let me know on Twitter at EtherVortexPod or via email at IntoTheEtherVortex at gmail.com. You can find Into the Ether Vortex on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and leave a review on any of those on, on those podcast stores on Podchaser.com. Link in the show notes. My architect with all of my deck lists is linked under the username NinjaBoy, uh, Boy Than I. I also stream Magic the Gathering some Friday nights at NinjaBoy333 on Twitch. Uh, the intro and outro music was provided by Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by NinjaBoy Media. We cast this pod every second and fourth Fridays of the month uh, when I'm not late. Next week, we'll be looking at my experience with Zendikar Rising Limited and Standard. Until then, though, may your lands be plentiful but not too plentiful, and I pass the turn. Uh-huh.